Are you a caregiver? Or do you have a loved one who is aging and you or they might have questions that need to be answered? We have some answers that might help. This is Aging Life Network with Nancy Oriola. Today, you'll hear from experts and others related to the field of aging who will bring you answers, best practices, and tips for helping your loved one navigate this new part of life. Now, here is your host, Nancy Oriola. Hello, this is your host, Nancy, and today we're talking about hospice. Of all the topics I have had to discuss with families, and even at times healthcare providers, this is among the most difficult. Rather than seeing hospice as a way of offering assistance with care and adding to a loved one's quality of life, too often hospice is equated with giving up. Recent data, in fact, published by the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization in 2018, states that more than half of those receiving hospice care under Medicare were were under hospice care for fewer than 30 days before their death. Understanding when hospice care should be considered and what assistance hospice can offer your loved one and their family will increase the possibility that your loved one will receive the comfort and care they need as all of your needs change, both theirs and yours. I am so pleased today to be joined by a woman that has been in the hospice world for more than two decades. When I heard her speak recently about this subject, I knew I wanted her to share her extensive knowledge with you. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Um, There's so many questions um, I have uh, based on what I know people are so often um, asking me, asking, you know, others. To get us started, Sarah, can you just give us a general overview of hospice before we get into all the questions? Absolutely. So um, I'm not exactly sure how I should answer this, but I always... Um, kind of get this question, oh, it's hospice, that means death, that means a, a bad thing, and we call it the H word. Um, but hospice actually is a circle of care. And what that means is that you have a physician, you have a nurse case manager, you have a social worker, you have a chaplain, um, you have a certified nursing assistant, and you have a volunteer um, if the family chooses to um, utilize that option. And together, we care for not only the patient, but the family as well, um, meeting them where they're at and helping them navigate the hospice page. Um, Mm -hmm. It's never easy, but um, with enough questions and answers and support, we usually can be very successful. So um, who pays for hospice? So many... Um, ways to pay for hospice. Private insurance pays for hospice, um, but unfortunately with private insurance, they will only pay for a set amount of time, which is usually um, three months or less. Medicare traditionally pays for hospice, um, and it is six months or less unless the patient continues to progress meaning that, say, today they were able to ambulate and 
six months from now, they're bed bound and not doing well, they would then continue to qualify for hospice and Medicare would continue to pay for that. Um, there's also private pay option. Um, sometimes we run into families that are transplanted from other countries um, that didn't work long enough in the United States to have that and utilize a private uh-huh. pay option. Okay. And of course, most hospices will also take care of non-funded patients. Okay. So for, um, yeah, typically my listeners are um, those caring for older adults. So most seniors have Medicare with some kind of supplement or, or a Medicaid backup. And so we'd be looking more than likely at a Medicare unless they have a private retirement insurance plan. Yeah, we see that a lot with federal employees that it's it's not their traditional Medicare, but that still does qualify them for um, Medicare. It's kind of a bridge program. So it's it's very different. I see. Okay. And um, and how do we know? Here's the big question, really. The big question is, how do we know it might be time to talk to a hospice provider and explore hospice? So my, my advice to families, it's never too soon to ask. Now, granted, if mom and dad are going to bingo and doing their own shopping and are active and full of life, well, of course not. Mm-hmm. But if you see mom or dad that are becoming more reclusive, requiring more assistance at home, where a couple months ago, mom and dad were able to go to the grocery store, now they're not able to navigate that anymore. Um, mom and dad may be having accidents um, where, as before, they were completely continent and were able to control that. Um, you may notice forgetfulness, um, increased visits to the physician, um, mm-hmm. having multiple visits to different types of physicians. Um, so it's never too soon. Mm-hmm. It's never mm-hmm. too soon because a evaluation doesn't cost the family anything. It's not an obligation to go onto service, but it also makes sense the earlier that you get connected with a hospice company, then you can start what we call a tickler file. And if they're not ready, we just check on them once a month and see where they're at. So it's never too soon to, to contact a hospice company. Yeah. When I was in the early part of my practice as a life care manager, I, more often than not was too early. But I learned that, I mean, it was one of the ways I learned um, about what the requirements were. People typically think it requires a, um, a terminal illness diagnosis of six months or less. And of course, the assumption is the six months or less. And ultimately, a physician does have to Certified. Um, certified to that. But we, when, you know, most of us think of a six month or less diagnosis related to cancer, um, um, kidney failure, kidney COPD. Fa- right. And, and we wait for the doctor, the primary care doctor to say, oh, it's time. And very often that doesn't come. And, um, partly because, you know, they spend 15 minutes seeing their patient, but also, um, you know, they're in the business of keeping them alive and maintaining and 
trying to keep them at a certain level. And so it really, would you say, behooves the family to learn about this resource? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I say it's never too soon because you can break down some of those barriers that families have. Um, And here in New Mexico, and it's not that way across the United States, but we have a large Hispanic culture. Um, you know, they really believe that hospice is, is a taboo thing and it's a bad thing. But if we're able to get in there and educate them, and so much of what we do is education mm-hmm. and kind of break down those barriers, remove those stereotypes. Um, so many times families are shocked. Well, what do you mean they can go out? Yeah, they actually can still have a fulfilling life, even though they're on hospice. Mm-hmm. Um, being on hospice is not a death sentence. Um, statistics actually show that people that come on service with hospice live longer, do better, and you, and um, what? How am I looking at it? They are more. Um, less likely to go to the hospital because we treat in home. We're available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm -hmm. Um, So if a patient has a fall, guess what? They call hospice. We go out and to assess. And evaluate. Mm -hmm. Saves Mm -hmm. 911 going out, taking mom Mm -hmm. or dad to the emergency room, waiting and seeing what's going to happen, especially Mm -hmm. in these COVID times. What are they going to be exposed to when we put them in the hospital? Well, and, and, and the fact is, um, I very often have seen, I'm sure you've seen hundreds, if not thousands, but um, I've very often seen people um, improve with hospice Absolutely. care. And I, and I think it's because of the additional medical care. Um, probably, I mean, you guys not only look at their medical needs, but you look at their their mental health, you look at their spiritual needs, their, their emotional needs. But I think I often see improvement. People sometimes graduate. It's a term of art in the industry, I think, that people graduate from right. hospice, right? Um, <clears throat> but I've seen many people recertify, um, not because they're having enormous decline, but, you know, enough of a decline to to stay on hospice, but they continue for more than the six months, certainly. Correct. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and there's certain um, mile markers that we use, if you will. Um, mom or dad was eating a dinner <clears throat> plate full of food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Now they're eating a salad plate full of food and they're not finishing it. Um, those are huge signs that say, hmm, something's going on here. Um, a lot of times, exactly, Mm -hmm. you know, naps are not just a 30 minute snooze in the recliner. They're sleeping for 10, 12, 13 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're less active and they're, you know, they require more. Um, and why I think people graduate and most of the time, the diseases that we see, graduate is malnutrition because like you said once we get our circle of care in the home and we're watching what they eat we're watching how many times they bathe we're looking for those utis we're watching the falls and with all the extra support they actually thrive and so that's when we see patients graduate obviously that's not a huge percentage but it does happen And what happens when they graduate is we make sure that, number one, they have continuity of care. And then, you know, we still follow up with them. 
And it's mm-hmm. always good to stay in contact with their primary care physician. That's one thing I wanted to talk about. A mm-hmm. lot of times patients say, well, I don't want to give up my doctor. If I go on to hospice, I'm going to give him up or her up. That's not true. Hospice works hand in hand with their primary care physician or the medical director of that hospice can assume responsibility and care for that patient. Yes, that is one of the concerns that people have, giving up their their existing medical team. <clears throat> they often have concerns as well that they have to give up their specialists. Correct. And so... Um, Maybe it's a good time to talk about um, <clears throat> the question or the concern that, you know, if mom goes on hospice, she has to stop all medications, all medical care, um, you know, it, it, thus the giving up kind of fear. Absolutely. Um, I won't, I mean, I can't speak to all hospice companies, but we are very much an advocate of patients that come on for cardiac we do not believe in stopping those cardiac medications. Um, The only time that we really believe in maybe discontinuing some of the medications would be for an Alzheimer's dementia patient because at a certain Mm -hmm. point, those medications no longer are beneficial for the individual. And it's just another pill for them to try and take. So you're talking talking about the Alzheimer or dementia-related medications, right? Right. And that's a whole education piece I'm sure you all do. Yes, I can't stress it enough. There are no wrong questions to ask a hospice provider because so much of what we do is patient. The more we become in tune with what we can see as a decline, as we can catch things quicker, And again, the ultimate goal of hospice is to one, make sure that the family is taken care of and the patient is taken care of, but we keep them out of the hospital, we keep them comfortable, and we keep them at home. Well, and even in the case of, let's say, cancer treatment, and, you know, usually hospice will be called, perhaps, if the person decides to stop um, certain kinds of treatment, correct? chemo. That's correct. However, um, there are times when some of those medications are used, I'm thinking in particular about radiation, as a palliative measure. So, Yes, and that's true. We, I mean, one of the, I can't, um, we evaluate that on a case-by-case basis, but a lot of times when we get a breast cancer mm-hmm. diagnosis, there is some medications that we continue um, for palliative reasons, and it reduces inflammation, reduces or controls right. the size of the mm-hmm. tumor, and it's you know, and it's considered palliative, and that's comfort-oriented care. So yes, a lot of times those medications are continued. Yes, and um, sorry, I'm getting distracted. What? Um, there's so many other questions. So, what typically are the goals of hospice? Do you have goals or care plans that you develop or? Mm-hmm. Yes, we do. So when we do an intake or meet with a family and we have an order and we've talked about um, hospice and what that means, we always ask the family, what are your goals? What is important to you? Um, and we base our care off of what the family's goals are. Maybe the goals are just simply, I want to keep mom home as long as I possibly can. I want to keep her comfortable. I want to keep her safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and we look at, at that as, okay, these are doable goals. How are we going to achieve that? 
And so we work with our interdisciplinary team, um, say that mom can't do daily baths. Okay, well, how are we going to solve that? Well, you know what? We can send the CNA over and help her bathe three to five times a week more if necessary. Okay, well, mom's also depressed. How are we going to address that? Well, guess what? That's what the social worker does and can kind of help them navigate through that. And so many times, the and I hate to say this out loud, but so many times it's not the patient that needs the therapy as much as it is the oh, family. Yes. Because they mm-hmm. have such a difficult time coping. Mm-hmm. And it truly is education and, and tearing down those stereotypes and showing them that this is really a good thing. This is a positive thing. And again, um, depending on the diagnosis, if things come up, right, like an infection, I, yeah, an infection or, um, uh, or as you mentioned, depression. I mean, they may receive treatment for those. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So it's not a matter of you either are off hospice receiving treatment for everything or on hospice retreat, receiving treatment for nothing. Um, Correct. It, it, so it, it really is um, looking at what the diagnosis is and and often it's things that treatment is no longer helping really i mean that's what begins to incur Uh, it begins to get people in fact i read somewhere that if you're asking yourself the question when is the time to call hospice that's probably the time to call hospice and so yeah um, I have several other questions and a lot more I want to talk about. So um, if you all can come back in a minute or two, uh, we will be here talking with Sarah Crutchfield, who, in my opinion, is an expert in this area. And I have a lot more I want to ask her. So we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you overwhelmed and struggling with the next step? Is your family in crisis? Do you need advice or help making a difficult decision for an aging loved one? Aging Life Network was developed to connect you with senior care experts and life care professionals who will discuss your unique situation, offer practical step-by-step guidance, tell you the questions to ask and help you understand the maze of options their network of life care professionals available to you through hipaa compliant video conferencing and calls will work with you to create action plans to solve your current and real-time problems aging life networks online educational center aln academy offers 24 7 access to the most up-to-date and accurate information for seniors and their families through podcast interviews with senior care experts articles and live webinars aging life network shares with you those things you need to know to care for your aging loved one check out aginglifenetwork.com today and find the answers you need your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness This is Aging Life Network. If you have a question or comment for Nancy about the show, please send an email 
to nancy at aginglifenetwork.com. That's nancy at aginglifenetwork.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, this is Nancy, and I'm here with Sarah Crutchfield from High Desert Hospice here in New Mexico. And um, yeah, we're talking about a tough subject, a subject that most um, people avoid until they absolutely can't. Um, although I find there are many caregivers who, um, family caregivers who, you know, have family members in the home um, and um, they just don't know when to call hospice. I, I would like to talk about dementia a little bit because I know in the past it's been a very tricky um, diagnosis to get hospice care um, for loved ones unless they were fully bedbound and nonverbal. And I think that has changed, has it? It, it has changed significantly, but some of those baseline or base markers are still the same. Um, they have to have difficulty ambulating. They have to have weight loss. They have to have incontinence, um, sometimes difficulty in swallowing. Um, Mm-hmm. word salad, meaning that their speech may not be intelligible to someone else. Um, so a severe, a severe, they're on correct. the severe end. Yeah. But not bit bad necessarily. That's correct. They can still ambulate because sometimes they, they, we have non-ambulatory patients or we have those ambulatory patients that should not be. And but because their dementia has progressed to that point, there's no way that we can encourage them nor teach them to use a wheelchair or a walker at that point. And it's at that point, we're just trying to mitigate the risk and keep them safe. Right, they're a full assist. Correct. Yeah, some of the literature um, out there, you know, the basic literature that that um, caregivers would read or families would read, almost imply that, you know, if they're at assisted living level of care, they qualify for hospice, and that's not necessarily the case. I mean, there there needs to be some other mitigating factors. That's correct. Than, that's correct. And just simply not being able to cook or or correct. Um, I mean, we look at ADLs, activities of daily living, and those include bathing, dressing, grooming, um, toileting, preparing meals, things like that. Those are the things that we look at when we're evaluating a dementia patient. So you're correct. We don't just say, okay, you're in an assisted living, you qualify. But if you're in an assisted living and you are incontinent, you cannot bathe yourself. You cannot dress yourself. Um, you cannot cook for yourself and you require cues for all of these things, then yes, it may be time for hospice. Okay. Well, there's many people probably who qualify that are not, families are not calling. Correct. Um, Okay. Yeah. And so let's talk about the, I mean, in every area of parent care, certainly, um, we often see differences of opinion yes. among, among families and siblings. And so, as you said, a lot of your care and work, certainly on the emotional level uh, by your social workers and even your nurses um, Correct. are done dealing with family systems. Correct. And, and so, um, so that's something they take on. 
Correct. And, you know, so much of what we do um, is being that voice for the patient. If they are able to express what their wishes are, Mm -hmm. we have to be that voice. We have to be that advocate. We have to look at advanced directives. Um, We have to say, hey, you know, we're not dealing with mom because if we were dealing with mom, mom would be in a different space. We're dealing with a disease process that has taken over. So we have to look at what truly is their wishes. And a lot of times just saying that comment to them kind of grounds them to, you're right, my mom would not want to live like this. My mom wouldn't want a feeding tube. My mom wouldn't want me to be, or wouldn't want to be a full code. So if I could also suggest to everybody, if that's listening today, if you do not have advanced directives, please, 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 do yourself and your family a huge favor and get one together because it's very difficult navigating through if you have a large family. Well, mom said she wanted this, but mom said she didn't want that. And if you have those things written down and family is aware of what your wishes and desires are, then they can actually advocate for those things to happen. Um, It's truly a gift. Yes, it's truly a gift. We see patients in the hospital Mm -hmm. and they're like, I don't want to be here, Sarah. Get me out of here. This is not what my life plan was. You know, I want to go home. I don't want all of this. And that's when hospice has to step in and say, okay, we have a living will. We have advanced directives. This is what he wants. I need to make sure this happens. And we have to be that voice. Yes, and um, and and to look closely at those documents because some of them don't have all of your wishes. Um, so just a little plug from my website, aginglifenetwork.com. We have a free download of a document called A Values History, and it is a 17-page document where you speak to you know, all of those things that you would want at end of life that may not be in your advanced directives. Advanced directives often, um, you know, look at um, being on, you know, having intubation, being on respirators, a DNR being a do not resuscitate order, or these days a most or a post of physician's order. Um, which does expand the advanced directive a little bit, but it's important to have those conversations. So, um, yeah, about a month ago, uh, a woman named um, uh, Gibson from um, the Conversation Project was on the show, and we we were encouraging people to go and look at the Conversation Project website that helps people have initiate those conversations, parents to children, children to parents. Um, Absolutely. So critical. Yeah. And it's, you know, it only allows us to be a better hospice. It allows us to care for them better. um, If there is such a word of caring for them better, but we can really be that activist and make sure that their wishes are followed and make sure that they're comfortable and make sure that the family understands, you know, what they wanted and what's going to happen. Um, again, I keep saying it's education, education, because let's face it, you don't get a do-over in death. 
you get one shot to get it right. And we have to do everything we can to make sure that they have a good passing, that their wishes are heard and acknowledged, the families are, are supported and taken care of. And really that's what hospice is. It's truly, for me, it's an honor and it's a privilege to be able to do that kind of work and to be there at the end and to hold their hand. A lot of people say, how could you do hospice? And my answer is, how could you not? Um, it, it's such a gift and I have cared for thousands of patients over the years and I cannot say enough that every single patient has taught me something that I use in my everyday life. So yes. it's definitely a blessing. Yeah. Well, there's so much fear around those last moments and, and losing, losing a loved one. It's, it's a difficult thing. Um, one of the one of the things that people are very often concerned about is um, the medications used to provide comfort and reduce pain um, and the fear of addiction. Um, I, you know, I had a 97 year old with a, a, you know, floating femur fracture that was, and, you know, the physician felt like, and she was going to be bed bound that she would not, live another 30 days. Of course, she lived four more years in that bed, but um, with great care. Um, however, her daughter was concerned about medications because of the addiction issue. I'm sure you hear that a lot. We hear that every day. Um, there's so much um, out there about morphine and the stigma that goes with that. And all hospice does is just prescribe pain meds and get them addicted so they can stay on hospice longer. Um, that's so far from the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, every patient has pain and experiences that differently. And we have to acknowledge that pain, but we are extremely careful when we prescribe pain medication, how much we prescribe. Mm-hmm. And we talk about it every two weeks in our interdisciplinary group. And every two weeks, a hospice company gets together with the doctor, the, um, the nurse, the social worker, the chaplain, the CNA, volunteers, and we discuss all these patients. And mm-hmm. you know, we look at them on a daily basis. And, and patients change daily, weekly, hourly, and we have to be able to respond to that. But those are one of the things that we always talk about is pain. And we address pain on every visit and we discuss it every IDG to make sure, are we giving enough? Are we giving too much? Is, you know, are there other interventions that we can utilize other than prescription medications? Sometimes, um, you know, we have holistic people that come in and do massages, um, range of motion, things like that. A pill isn't always the, the answer to everything. But we have signs and symptoms that tell us, even with the nonverbal patient, whether or not they're experiencing pain. And that's something that we have to address on every single visit. Um, we do utilize morphine, but not all the time. Yeah. Um, we use tramadol. We use ibuprofen, Tylenol, and mm-hmm. those things can be done liquid as well mm-hmm. um, for patients that aren't swallowing um, mm-hmm. towards the end. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it... It is a big concern and it is something that we are hypervigilant about these days, especially with everything that's going on in New Mexico. Yes. And so, um, yeah, so if a family member feels like the 
pain medication is, quote, you know, making mom too out of it. I mean, you can address that. You can change the dosage. You can can assist with that. Um, And we always, as a rule, start out with the lowest dose possible and then graduate in increments. So we don't just come in and say, oh, she needs this. No, we start out at the lowest dose possible and then titrate up to accommodate and make sure when we get that period of relief so that Mm -hmm. we're not snowing them. Because our goal as a hospice is not to sedate somebody and, and put them in this twilight sleep so they just never do anything. No, we want them to have their best life for whatever time they have left. And pain control is a big part of that. But also being awake is a big part of that. They have some unfinished business that they need to attend to. Mm-hmm. How are they going to be able to do that? So it's right. something that we are very careful about. Right. Quality of life is not being out of it all day. That's correct. Right. That No one would define that as quality of life. Yes. How would you define quality of life? Is that something that's unique to each individual? It is. Um, and again, uh, I'm going to go back to my old standby. It's education and it's, it's knowing the patient and spending the time with them to get to know them to what, what is your goal? Is your goal to be at home for as long as you possibly can and be as independent as you possibly can? Okay, well, what's that going to look like? Um, and at what point do we need to talk about placement? What point do we need to do this? Is there any unfinished business that they need to attend to? And those are all things that we look at as quality of life. Very rarely do we get a perfect patient that has everything, you know, in a perfect order. All their things are taken care of. They are ready to go. And, you know, the heavens are going to open and and accept this patient. I wish that were the case, but that's not life. (laughs) So, um, but quality of life is is something for everybody to to be judged on an individual basis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we talk to families with dementia patients, what can we do to help you? What can we do to help mom? What are your goals? Well, I want my mom to be peaceful. I don't want her to be screaming anymore. I don't know why she's screaming. I want her to have quality of life because she she was this beautiful, vibrant person who was so nice to everybody and she screams all the time now. So sometimes behavior modification with medications means quality of life to where they have some peace. Because, you know, one of the things I always try and relate to, to patients is this isn't your mom as you knew her. This is your mom in a disease process. And we have to separate your mom from the disease and treat the symptoms of the disease and leave mom alone. Um, And Mm -hmm. by that, I mean, if mom is hitting and and screaming and yelling and has aggressive behaviors and mom was this sweet, you know, matriarch of the family who took care of everything and everybody, what she's living now is not quality of life. So we look at the signs and symptoms and treat those to get to a point where she can have peace. Do you talk to all the family members? Actually, I do. It's, it's something that I don't think I could ever give up. Um, when I started High Desert, I just, you know, I'm old school. Um, I started in hospice back when, you know, we did everything. And when I, the last corporate job that I had, it was, 
oh, they can't have those wipes. That's too expensive. They can't have that many diapers. Are you crazy? No, we can't pay for that. No, Mm -hmm. no, no, no. And I'm like, but that's not what hospice is. Um, Hospice to me is the purest form of medicine that is left that is the least convoluted or at least what I believe should be. Um, So I'm more of a purist, if you will, when it comes to the definition of hospice. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So um, even if, um, so if, if someone is the healthcare power of attorney, Mm -hmm. um, but there are other family members, would you talk to all the family members in that case in order to develop the care plan? I I suppose in some cases you'd have to get permission by the power of attorney. Right. And how that usually works is we do a hospice 101. And what that is, is an informal question answer period with the family. And I think the largest one that I've ever done was 30 family members and we filled up a conference room. Mm-hmm. It was a large Catholic Hispanic family and everybody had a different view. And yes. so that's when we do the hospice 101. This is what you can expect. This is what's going to happen next. What kind of questions do you have? What It's kind of like what to expect when you're expecting. Yes. But it's what to expect when you're, you're dying. And one of the things that mm-hmm. we always say is you labor when you come into this world and you labor when you go out. Mm-hmm. And we mean make Mm -hmm. it as beautiful of a death as it was when you came into this world as a birth. And it's a process. Well, um, so I have to take one more break, but um, when we come back, I'd like to talk specifically about some of the things in that 101 you speak about, what the process is. I assume it's based on the diagnosis or, you know, that person, but, but in a broader sense. And also, um, been hearing a little bit about death doulas, so I'd like to get your take on that. We'll sure. be right back. Come back. Thanks. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Are you overwhelmed and struggling with the next step? Is your family in crisis? Do you need advice or help making a difficult decision for an aging loved one? Aging Life Network was developed to connect you with senior care experts and life care professionals who will discuss your unique situation, offer practical step-by-step guidance, tell you the questions to ask, and help you understand the maze of options. Their network of life care professionals, available to you through HIPAA-compliant video conferencing and calls, will work with you to create action plans to solve your current and real-time problems. Aging Life Network's online educational center, ALN Academy, offers 24-7 access to the most up-to-date and accurate information for seniors and their families. Through podcast interviews with senior care experts, articles, and live webinars, Aging Life Network shares with you those things you need to know to care for your aging loved one. Check out aginglifenetwork.com today and find the answers you need. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Aging Life Network. If you have a question or comment for Nancy about the show, please send an email 
to nancy at aginglifenetwork.com. That's nancy at aginglifenetwork.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, this is Nancy. I'm here with Sarah Crutchfield from High Desert Hospice. And, you know, in the many conversations that I've had with her, I've really come to understand that um, she really does bring a unique perspective and her particular company does do things that I have not experienced in other hospices. And in fact, um, some of you know, I personally um, lost a parent last March and she was with a hospice back East that did, um, you know, in terms of care for the family, really, I think they did an adequate job with mom, but in terms of talking to the family members, um, it was pretty it was pretty non-existent, and uh, and that made it really difficult for everyone. Um, and so, I would love to hear your process. And as people listen, this is really, in my opinion, and I think Sarah agrees. This is what you should expect, and you can ask initially. You may not think that you want as much communication or need as much communication as you will need. Believe me, you'll need it. And so. Sarah, if you could talk about, well, the Hospice 101 education that you do with mm-hmm. families and then also um, your process in getting sure. people. So one of the things that we do when we get a referral or even what we call a community referral is we call the family and find out who the power of attorney is and we set up a family meeting. And in that family meeting is a question and answer period of what you can expect. Um, what we can do, what we cannot do. Um, We talk about um, hospice home care and treatment of pain and symptoms, um, 24-hour availability of nursing, so we're on call 24-7, 365 days. Um, We talk about our circle of care, which we've touched on previously, so the medical director, nurse case manager, social worker, chaplain, CNA, which is Certified Nursing Assistant, who are godsends, and a volunteer program. Those are the six things that every hospice should have and you should be receiving. Um, If you're not, that's a problem. Um, So the other thing is, is people say, well, you know, mom just got out out of the hospital. She fell and broke a hip. She's not recovering. Well, you know what? Hospice does have to offer physical therapy and occupational therapy. It's not a long-term thing, but if it's for training for transfers, um, helping patients with gait, that is something that they have the right to. And we always send a physical therapist out to do an evaluation um, and see if, if they have any what's called rehab potential. Now, if the physical therapist says that they do not have any and there isn't anything more than we can do, we've dotted our I's and crossed our T's. Um, And a lot of times it's two or three visits and it's training the family how to do that um, to make them more safe at home. So that's something that you should be able to expect. Um, Medical equipment, bed, wheelchair, walker, over the bedside table, all of that should be included in your hospice package, including oxygen. Um, A lot of people say, well, I want some of these specialty oxygen gadgets. That's not going to happen. Unfortunately, Medicare gives us a group of what we can provide and what we can't. But Mm -hmm. we always provide liquid oxygen if it's medically necessary. 
um, tanks, um, things like that. So sure. always look and see. Um, it's not so much what we won't do as what we have to operate within the guidelines. Um, a big thing that people say is, um, well, what's respite? Well, respite is what I call rest for a bit. And that would be family members that have loved ones at home. They are um, able to utilize that respite for five days in a facility. Um, and we pick up the tab for that. Oh. Um, we provide transportation to and from the facility. We provide for all the medications and things like that while they're at that stay. Um, you usually can get one of those um, per certification or caregiver burnout. Um, say that we've never turned anybody down because sometimes there's extenuating circumstances. True. But that's why it's so important to have that social worker so they can help you recognize when you get that burnout. Um, 24 hour continuous care. If there's unmanageable symptoms at home, we do have a specialty on call team that can mitigate those types of patients and they should be able to receive nursing services bedside at the house. Um, what, I'm sorry, what, what instances would that be? So uncontrollable symptoms like, um, nonstop vomiting, explosive diarrhea, excruciating pain that has not been able to be managed. That requires that next level of care to where a nurse can be bedside for up to eight hours, making sure that they're getting that pain medication, the anxiety medication. The anti-nausea medication. medication. Yes. Okay. Right. Okay. And one of the big things that families don't know or don't take advantage of is aftercare. Aftercare is just as much of a part of hospice as it is the process. And you should be receiving 13 months of um, bereavement care from your hospice company, um, checking on you with, with mailings and support groups and chaplaincy calls and social work calls to make sure that you're grieving appropriately and you have the tools that you need to do so. Um, there is no you know, guideline or a book that says this is how you grieve a loved one. Everybody experiences that differently and comes to terms with it differently. And that's just as much a part of what we do as caring for the patient while they're with us. Um, it's one of the ways that we continue to honor them after they've passed. Um, some, and we pay for all medications related to the diagnosis um, and anything for pain, constipation, um, we treat infections. We pay for those medications if they're related to a diagnosis. An explanation would be um, an end-stage dementia patient that has frequent UTIs. UTIs are usually a side effect of incontinence. So that is actually related to that. So I'm responsible to pay for those antibiotics. Okay. Um, so that's how that would work. I mean, otherwise, um, I mean, their health insurance would pick it up. Would cover, their their, their drug coverage. So, yeah. So you don't want to you don't want to give up your medical coverage because no. you're in hospice. That's correct. Um, but hospice, yes. Yeah, so you pay for all medications that are quote related, but it sounds like you would understand more than than we would. Right. And we Where actually, when we do an intake, we, one mm -hmm. of the things that the nurse does is goes over the medication list and we discuss mm -hmm. with family members what they're currently on, what the medication is for. Do they want to continue it? Do they want to discontinue it? 
Um, a lot of times patients don't want to take all the vitamins and supplements that they were taking prior to. Um, yes. And so we discontinue those. Um, but it's always a family's option to direct the care. They should always be informed of what they're taking and any changes of medication prior to that taking place. Um, instituting um, antipsychotics, something for behaviors. We have to give you the education to know why we're prescribing that medication, what the side effects are, and let you make the decision that this is what doc thinks would really help mom. So are you okay with it? This is the pros and cons. Let's sure, start the medication sure. or not. Um, same with pain medications. Um, that's something that, that you should know about prior to them starting, reason why we're starting it, if it's working. Um, and we also encourage families to attend IDG if they want to. They're allowed to call in and speak with the doctor every two weeks. IDG is what? Um, interdisciplinary group. So that's when all disciplines meet and we discuss our patient. Huh? Some patients' families don't because our nurses and social workers and chaplains speak with the families on a weekly basis. That's our standard of care. There isn't an option not to. Mm -hmm. um, and we ask them how is best to communicate with you. Um, do you like text? Do you like emails? Do you like phone calls? Is it okay mm -hmm. to leave a voicemail? Um, you know, now these days it takes a village to take care of a family. And we all mm -hmm. are still working. I mean, there's no way that I could stay home and take care of my mom. I just can't. Um, <laughs> so we rely on our village, our people, to help mm -hmm. us. So mm -hmm. that's kind of what we do. Um, and you have a right to be informed of anything that happens. And we ask for fluid conversations. If you're concerned about something, let us know. Um, there is no right or wrong question when it comes to end of life. Everything is individualized. So um, I can attest to the fact that, um, and, you know, I will spare my audience, but my parent was on the East Coast and uh, worked with a company that's quite large. And um, so much of what you're talking about uh, was not provided. No bereavement, not one single outreach call. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, no conversations, um, even after being asked to be included in wow. some kind of updates. And so, you know, I think it's critical that families um, ask and um, listen to what you're saying and, and question, uh, you know, there are a lot of hospice services. I think they're limited in cities, but it depends on the population. So there's many options. Right. And, um, you know, in some rural areas, there are fewer options, but there's typically more than one option. And so people need to definitely... Um, hear what you're saying and question. Um, there are so many benefits. Sadly, I mean, my, you know, sometimes you have to, you're almost convincing the family why this would be a good thing. And sometimes I just use simply all those benefits. I'll say, well, you know, it's not a it's not a death sentence, but you will get the medications, the equipment, the support, the people, the nurse, um, things that, that folks really need. We are, we're 
coming toward the end of our show today. Um, Sarah, I think what you bring to the hospice community is so critical that um, I would encourage you to kind of be out there. And uh, I am, I'm sure you are um, telling people what they should expect um, because uh, people are not getting, getting all of their needs met. Which is unfortunate because how like can, it, it's, it's crucial that it they is. do. It is. Are there places, other national organizations people can turn to to look for um, information or uh, directories of local hospices or do you just have to look on the internet? I would suggest looking on the internet, but I also would ask um, if you're looking at a discharge planner, they're going to, here's a list, pick three and, you know, go down the list and figure Mm -hmm. it out. Mm -hmm. But I would also look at uh, your churches. Um, I would reach out to community projects, reach out to your Alzheimer's association, reach out to your Mm -hmm. local church, Um, Mm -hmm. family and friends, word of mouth is by far the best advertisement that you could ever get for For, us. For any, most services, yes. Well, I want to thank you for coming on today and talking about um, this very important subject and hoping that we've demystified it a little bit for families and answered some of their questions, address some of their concerns. I, I thank you very much for what you do. It's, uh, it's oh, an amazing you. service. I know it takes a lot of heart um, to do it. And I will, um, people can hear this on my uh, website or voiceamerica.com and share it with their family and friends. Thanks, Sarah. Thank, thank you. you. Take care. Thank you for tuning in this week to Aging Life Network. Please join host Nancy Oriola for another edition of the program next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We can't wait to talk again.